scraps and the scrolls, part eight of Clash of Kings. Yes, part eight already. We are nearing the end, and I'm sure you will remember just what's coming around the corner. But before that, we have another six chapters for you today. It'll be another quick episode, I am guessing. That is good for me, because I am seemingly spending every single second of my life finishing this castles book there's something to announce about that i will not do it here uh, i won't waste your time on that that's coming soon though so uh, if you are interested keep an eye out yes very quick because again i seem to have done something right and aziz has used most of my notes up so that is good and there's nothing wrong for a nice quick episode anyway that is where we uh, made our mark back when season eight was on when the lovely lady buckley could join me nice half an hour episodes some people seem to like that we will get back to longer episodes once I'm not drowning in castles and crenellations and drawbridges and moats and oh no, if I start I won't stop so I won't go on. So yes, hello, I am Sir Berkeley. I'm talking to you from freezing England, although the sun is out. To be fair, it looks a lot like Skyrim where I live so I'm not going to complain too much. I'm Sir Berkeley, and I will be taking you through our six chapters today. They are Daenerys 3, the one where they're still in calf and stuff's not going well and that's about it. There is Tyrion 9, the riot. There is Davos 2, the one with Sir Courtney Penrose. Here we go. There is John 5, the one with Corin Halfhand. Here we go. There's Tyrion 10, and Shay and Barris backstory. That one's not as good. And of course, you know where I have to finish. It's Catelyn 6, Catelyn chapter. More River Run going to battle. I like it, I like it, I like it. So let's get straight to it today with. Daenerys 3. We don't get Daenerys too often, so let's take advantage while we do. So last Danny chapter, which I know does seem a long, long time ago, they're so spread out in this book, we spoke about the sudden slap Danny experiences of being offered everything and anything. She is wandering in the desert, they can't find food or water, you know, these kind of basic necessities, and all of a sudden... There is literally everything in the world just being handed in you, shoved in your face. It's quite a uh, submersion, it's quite a shock. Before, it was just offers, promises. Now, she's actually getting the stuff. She's actually receiving heaps of different merchandise from the different traders, from the merchants, etc. It's not stuff she wants, to be fair. It's not going to get her to the Iron Throne, but she does try and use it that way. And I think she's going to get better and better at realising the value of commodities that well, first to look at them, aren't, you know, this isn't an army, what can I do with it? But assume she's going to learn the value of certain goods that she can use for bribes and, and payments and whatever else. Now, I think the point of this chapter is, it's, an, it's a common question for Daenerys through her arc, but what path do you want to choose? It's the same as in Game of Thrones, where she could have, she could have just forgotten her heritage, she could have just gone off and been Khaleesi, and that would have been fine. She didn't have to ask Khal Drogo to go to Westeros, she could have just left it behind. No. She wants to be a queen. So she kept on that path in Game of Thrones. She's doing the same here in Clash of Kings. What path will keep me closest to being a queen? What is going to get me back to Westeros? So in this case, she's not being tempted by a Khaleesi. She's being a Khaleesi title. She's being tempted to just stay and be wealthy and be uh, lauded upon with Zaro. Or, on the other hand, Jorah is still there. Of course he is also offering a path that diverges away from being a queen. She says no to that as well. Both of them would have temptations, both of them getting turned down. No, not you, Zara. No, not you, Jorah. I am sticking with the queenly road. What's going to get me there? Okay, we're going to have to go to Pyat Pri as the chapter finishes. So Jorah, speaking of, his rather unhidden suspicion of any man who so much 
glances at Danny, even Zara, who I think we can agree doesn't actually have that much sexual interest in her. But even him, Jorah's not happy. No one look at her, no one touch her, no one talk to her. She's mine. That's the Jorah moment mindset. Annoyingly, on this occasion, it does he does prove to be right. Jorah is right. They are all out for a bad time for Danny, so she shouldn't trust them. But I don't think she should be buying into the trust Jorah vibe too much either, because as we know, not that it's mentioned in this chapter, obviously, but as we know as rereaders, he's still sending messages at this point. So we've got to take a big old pinch of salt with whatever he's saying. Last point for this chapter, like I said, as he's, he's getting through all my notes, don't know how he does it. Quay's prophecy. So as you know, let's go west to Restros, go north to deal with the others. That's my spin on it. And let's just leave it there. Forget the rest. Don't worry about going east and south and all that. Danny, just go west to Restros, then go north to deal with the others. And I don't know, just just tell Quay if you did, did, did the other stuff. Okay, so that's Daenerys free. Let's move on real, real quick today. Tyrion 9, there's a bit more on this one. I'm sure you remember this chapter, very famous chapter of the bread riots and everything, everything starts to go wrong. Well, not starts, it's been going wrong for a while. Now you can see it all going wrong. Even someone like Joffrey can suddenly tell that things aren't quite right in the capital. Before that, there's more seeds of eventual Dornish involvement with the plot. There's the promise of moving troops into the high passes, and I'm unsure if it's ever actually stated that this does change the mind of any martial lords. That's Tyrion's plan here. Doran Martell, he's going to stack his, his <laughs> like a game of risk, he's going to stack his troops up on the Dornish Mountains and the high passes, and even though he's not going to go and actually get involved in the war, Tyrion kind of says, well, the March Lords don't know that, so they might just turn around and not march with Stannis or Renly or whoever because they've got the Dornish behind them. But we don't know if that actually ever works. It's never said, or at least I don't remember it being said. Do correct me if I'm wrong, please. And to be fair, we barely visit the Stormlands and the... Well, we don't finish the visit the Dornish marches at all from this point in the story, so it's tough to know. But it does give some hints of how cautious yet subtle Doran is already, even though we're not going to meet him for a little while yet. We haven't even met Oberyn yet. But these seeds we can all see coming back later on. And I think as he's mentioned that uh, Tyrion's thinking about how lucky he is that Stannis hasn't hasn't come yet because they're, they're just not ready. King's Landing isn't ready. So really, Tyrion should be thanking Courtney Penrose for delaying Stannis, even though it's just by two weeks, which really isn't a lot if you think about it, to get a city ready for siege and a battle. Yeah, Tyrion, you need to write a thank you note to Courtney Penrose because he's kind of saved you here. All right, let's get into the the riots and, and the bad times. So are the people shouting Joffrey's name before it all goes wrong? They're riding back through the crowd. You can hear people shouting Joffrey, Joffrey, Joffrey. Are they shouting that out of loyalty or are they just personalising their begging? Are they saying, yeah, Joffrey? Or are they saying, oi, Joffrey, give me some food? It's not really stated. And Joffrey, he probably would have had to tell the difference, would he? Either way, the ever-stretching bubble we've seen grow in the first half of the book, Joffrey at the gates, Joffrey with his crossbow, Joffrey telling them to eat each other, that bursts now, that bubble's gone. Because Joffrey is maniacal enough to think that he can act the same whether he is in the Red Keep or not. That's how delusional he is. I can fire my crossbow, I can tell you to eat yourselves in the Red Keep. I can do it here as well, there's no difference. What is the Red Keep? What are these walls? He doesn't know, <laughs> he doesn't realise. Soon enough, we don't need to guess what the small folk are thinking and why they're shouting Joffrey. Because now they're shouting everything else as well. And it's, they get a great mix in there. They've got the rumours of Cersei, they've got the evidence of Joffrey... They've got the promise of Stannis and they've got their ever-present life-destroying hunger. It's all in there. 
And again, as he's mentioned about the effect of Stannis' letter, there was really ever only ever going to be one result from all this, wasn't there? I don't think you can have the Cersei rumours, the Stannis promise, the, the Joffrey crossbow and cannibalism recommendations, all the hunger, all put together and not have a riot. And to be fair, I think Tyrion and the others, they're actually lucky that there's no single figure appears at this moment for the mob to rally behind. It's not an organised mob. I don't think they all came and said, right, when they get to this bit, then we're going to throw dung at Joffrey, then we'll do this. It just bursts. It's just pure emotion they're riding out there. And it, it, it's, it's a spark. It, go, it inflames and then it dies fairly quickly because there's no organisation. If there had been someone actually running the show, someone had stepped up at this point and said, right, everybody follow me, we're taking this part of the city. For those of you who've heard Fire and Blood, there's obviously detailed sections on this during Rhaenyra's reign, etc. There's a lot of figures through history you can imagine taking on that role. The Shepherd, for example, those other people at the, um, at the end of the Dance of Dragons. Imagine if the High Sparrow had set himself up a bit earlier. Now that's counterintuitive because at the moment these people are also angry with the Faith. That's why they tear the High Septon apart. But if the High the High Sparrow could have set himself up as an opposite, as an alternative, you've got the fat High Septon with all his jewels, and you've got the High Sparrow who's thin and bedraggled and doesn't wear shoes. So they could have easily got behind him. And just, just imagine that, if that had all happened before now. That's a very different riot. That's a much longer lasting riot. That's a much more difficult to quell riot. So suddenly this riot would be lasting a lot longer, doing a lot more damage. So Tyrion actually gets away with one there. And again, Aziz spoke about this, but I had a slightly different look on it. The viewpoint of the small folk towards him personally is really a surprise for Tyrion, which is kind of understandable, given how he's gone from victory to victory. He's done so much for the city, in his mind. But for all Tyrion's strength and understanding the psychology of Cersei or Joffrey, or like we said last week, even Mason Loras, who's like he's never he doesn't even know really. He's just never clicked in properly of the small folk mindset, despite having plenty to play with. There's plenty he could have done, which I know as he's got to, so I won't repeat here. But this is where we see his first thoughts that will dominate Storm and Dance Tyrion later to come. This is where he starts really hating on the small folk. To be fair, even in Game of Thrones, we've been talking about he he doesn't have the best mindset when it comes to small folk, if you think about his thoughts about Masha Heddle, etc. But he, still, he just can't connect because he's not one of them. He doesn't know their life. He comes from Cassidy Rock. He is the epitome of noble and wealth. and So he just can't connect to that. And it's obviously costing him here, even if it is a surprise for him. And lastly, for this chapter, Aziz got to my note, thankfully, about the Kingsguard in this chapter. But again, we have the split of Sandok again being the only successful one of the bunch, despite not technically being a knight, and his insistence to deny any notions of chivalry or be being knightly. But he's the only one that actually gets anything done in this chapter. Right then, Davos 2. We got Daenerys chapter, we got Davos chapter, we're getting all the rare ones today. So, firstly, we see Stannis willing to put up with those with questionable loyalty in order to achieve his ultimate goals and be in a position to even the score later, something he's not famous for. Generally, Stannis is the one who doesn't bend, the one who doesn't move or waver. That's not really true. And I know, I'm sure all of you follow Brendan Beefish, and he's had a lot of thoughts about this in the past and wrote a lot about that. So we don't need to go into that too much, but it's just a good evidence point that Stannis can accept, you know, means to an end type thinking. He's like, okay, I don't like these guys. They're not very loyal. But if I put up with them for now, 
I can punish them later. I can't get my cleaver out just now because they'll all leave me, I'll lose the war. So instead I'm going to keep it in my pocket for a little bit this time, even if it's not really what I want to do. I'm going to chop the fingers off later, that kind of thinking. Because he's he does think outside the box, more, I think, more than we give him credit for, Stannis. He really does go a lot of different ways, as we've seen with this letter. How many times do you really see that letter get brought up in general discussion within the fandom? Not a lot. But it's, we've just seen the effects of it. He is effective. He is thinking outside the box. That's why he's got Melisandre along for the first place. He says it in Davos 1. Yeah, it must be Davos 1. Yeah, he's got Melisandre because no one else has her. So he's going to see what he can get out of her. He's going to see what use she can be in this war. Because his ultimate goal is unwavering. So his, uh, his means, he's willing to play with it. Okay, and fingers crossed that we one day get an explicit explanation for the creation of the Shadow Assassins and the specific mechanics, and you know, probably in a Melisandre POV in Winds or maybe Dream if she lasts that long. For now, we have the evidence here that life pays for death. It's another connection between Miriam Asda and Melisandre. And we also have evidence for more life creating, the act of life creating, I think you know what I mean, to bring about a being of death. That's what's happened here. That's what Melisandre has had to do to create the Shadow Assassin. And we get we get those hints, and I think that's well accepted anyway. But I really want to know. I want to hear Melisandre say it. I really want to know what needs to be done there. And we can also have the assumption that Stannis didn't truly order Renly's death. He's just kind of taken in this other stuff. Which does mean Stannis thought he could win that battle, I guess. It's a bit 50-50 because... He had been told Renly was going to die, so how, how strict was Stannis's faith there? That night before battle, where Renly clearly had the higher numbers, what was Stannis's plan just in case Renly didn't die? We know he had the sun behind him, so Renly was going to charge into the, into the dawn. Okay, I don't know if that's enough to win. So what else did he have? He, he must have had something in his back pocket, and I just want to know what it is. I'm curious. I don't think Stannis is the type to go into battle with crossed fingers. I think he would have had a plan anyway. Speaking of this whole murder thing, so Stannis, he has this kind of half-sleep experience of seeing the assassination, and this is probably what really does invest him in Mel's power. He, I know he kind of believed in it before, but this is obviously far, far more convincing than anything Melisandre's done so far. So, And he's got a major benefit out of it, so now he's really invested in whatever she's got to say even though he does tell her to go home in like, the next chapter. But you can see how that's a massive turn in his arc for later on, that he's really going to buy into all of that in, uh, in Storm Swords. Now, Stannis' offer to Courtney Penrose is actually pretty sweet, if you think about it. He says you, your men can take any weapons they've got, they can carry as, uh, well, take as much property as you carry. That's a pretty decent deal. You're in the middle of a war, but you get to take your weapons, pretty important. And, you know, if you're band together, you can take the kitchen table as well. You're not going to get any better offers when you've got an army sieging around what is technically their castle. So maybe Courtney Penrose should have uh, thought about that. But then we go, we love him too much, don't we? And which I know as he's got to again. Okay, next chapter we're flying through. I'm going to keep this short because I've got a lot of work to do. I don't know if you know I'm, I'm, I'm writing a castles book. Oh, you can ask me about it later. Don't worry. Okay, John 5. Yeah, here we go. Corrin Half and we're getting all the cool people today. So... This is the split in John's storyline. Like Aziz said, thank you Aziz. Um, I know he got to that, but there was also a little caveat that this is where we leave the, the others and the horn of the wall and all the creepiness of the forest. We're leaving all that aside for a while while John goes on his cool mission with Corrin and the band. 
And we also kind of leave behind Benjen. And we don't really return to the Benjen bit. <laughs> the others come back. The Horn kind of comes back with Sam. Benjen, not so much. John, he just has so little time to think on those things once he's in the, the swing of things with um, with Corin. And we as readers, we're not going to return to the plight of the Night's Watch until Chet in the Storm of Swords uh, prologue. So, which I know doesn't seem that far away because we're on part 8 of 12 of Clash of Kings. So it's not that far away really. But, you know, it's a, it's a big deviation. We've been with them since John 3 of Game of Friends. Yeah, John 3. And now we're leaving them behind. So it's a big deviation, like I say. But before we go... George leaves some hints for us just as just as we abandon them he's going to leave some hints about the state that they're in and just the tiniest hint from Chet about the future mutinies and the general mood in camp to be fair I think a good many of the men know that this camp on the fist and the great ranging in general is a bad idea I would be good friends with them because I agree not a good idea I wouldn't mutiny and stab you or Mormont, but I do agree that it's a bad idea. And that generally they aren't very happy. But right now, very few of them are thinking of outright murder. It's really like two or three out of 300, which isn't a bad percentage. So well done, Geo. But when the dead come and the true the storms truly start coming, winter really kicks in, they have that awful harrowing march back to Craster's Keep. That changes a few more minds. Then again, John hears this from Chet now before it gets too bad. And he does nothing. What if he had mentioned to someone just to keep an eye out? What if he does, had said to Geo, just maybe keep an eye on that Chet one, some of the others, then they're grumbly a bit? Would that have even changed anything? Maybe. It depends, because are the dead coming anyway? If the, Let's say that they left the fist right now. Are the dead still going to come and get them on the march anyway? We, we don't know. There's just no way to know that. Let's talk about Corrin. It's a great introduction. Not only do we get the very specific physical imagery... But he jumps right on the page, having just dealt with a famous enemy in Alfin Crowkiller. Alfin? Alfin? I'm going Alfin. While dealing out considerable damage to, uh, to, the, to the enemy in general, and learning some valuable intelligence along the way. Now, considering we've just been waiting on the fist for the last few chapters and arguing about what to do next, hmm, we have Gior on one hand, who's kind of indecisive, or making the wrong decisions, and then Corrin on the other hand. And I think you can tell who would be the more popular popular figure there. Certainly, Corrin seems kind of more handy to have around, doesn't he? It's very interesting how Corrin chooses John because of Ghost and his first men blood. I had forgotten the specific reasons, actually. It's easy to get mixed up with the show here where John volunteers more. But considering this comes up one chapter after Ghost has just put his skills to use and shown how he's kind of creepy and in touch with things that everyone else isn't, it's good timing from Corrin. So lastly, for this chapter, the logistics of manning the wall and preparing for man's... Uh, they're incredibly interesting to me and yet frustrating. Because Jill's saying here, and John also, obviously, even if they got back, you know, they can't man all the wall. It's too too wide a stretch. Man's could strike anywhere. But they kind of think maybe he'll go here, maybe he'll go there, etc, etc. I just believe that Jill would have been in so much better position to do something if he had not gone on this ranging. And some of that is the benefit of hindsight, to be fair. Corrin might, might not have gained this information if they hadn't had the ranging. They wouldn't have captured this wildling and learnt what they did. And Jill, to be fair, he also couldn't know the majority of his force would be slaughtered by the dead. Although I would argue he knew enough that something is going on above the wall and maybe taking all your force there wasn't a good idea. But I've said enough about that, haven't I? I, do, I just think being on the wall and 
preparing there. We know what happens. I think I'm proven right in this, but feel free to just disagree. Okay, Tyrion 10. So this is, this is a chapter mainly about Shay, mainly about Varys' backstory, which is a good little story. But more than that, this chapter is a, a significant downturn after all of Tyrion's riding high. He has a bad time with Shay. She gets on his nerves a bit. He's starting to suspect Bronn with this Tommen plot. Um, and there's mistrust in what Varys is telling him also. There's Tysha talk, which we know is never a good time for Tyrion, obviously, fairly enough. And uh, there's a singer causing problems. And Stannis is around the corner also. So it's not a good chapter for Tyrion after all these good ones. So first off, this Tommen thing. The whole Tommen debacle is a clear-cut case of Tyrion and Cersei both turning each other into what the other already thinks they are, if you understand. Cersei, she thinks that Tyrion is the Valenquar that we know from benefit of reread, and he's this evil little monster who's out to get her children. Tyrion thinks that Cersei is um, evil, out to get him, might hurt Shay. And, and to be fair, Shades are both true before this chapter anyway. But they really just push each other along those respective arcs here. If they had worked together, uh, they probably would have still ended up on the same decision, send Tommen away, try and keep him safe. But because both of them tried to jump one spot ahead, it leads to their ultimate breaking later on when Cersei kidnaps Shay, in quote marks. So they're just pushing each other along, not, not helping each other at all. Now, Aziz talked a bit about my notes on Taisha, so I won't repeat there. But I do think it's important to point out that Tyrion... He's very aware of his shame about taking part in what happened in the barracks. Obviously, of course. But he's actively trying to avoid a repeat scenario here. I.e., if he brings Shay in, into the court or gives her what she's asking for here, and she's being pretty direct about what she'd like, um, if he does that and she ends up hanged or abused or whatever, it'll be his fault as it was before. So he's just trying to avoid that feeling. If he, Even if he's not realising that's what he's doing, he's trying to avoid that shame and guilt they has over Taisha happening again. Because obviously you would not want to do that again. Okay, on to Varys. Like I said, he's got to my Taisha stuff. Which is nice, because I don't want to have to think about Taisha stuff more than I have to, to be honest with you. I completely forgot on that Varys mentions the passage to the Tower of the Hand this early on. So with the breaking of the Shea relationship, the mention of kinslaying in this chapter, there's now talk of this passage. This is easily one of the biggest foreshadowing chapters Tyrion's eventual Storm of Swords arc. It really is. Got a quote here from Varys. The Oakheart Leaf and the Rowan Tree have been seen north of the Mander. So to a first time reader, this is George just signaling that there's no hope against King's Landing and now they've got more enemies coming from another direction and Tyrion is basically screwed. It's just adding onto this pile that we've already got from this chapter. To us re-readers, we know this is actually the Tyrell army massing at Tumblr's Falls and about to join up with Tywin and save Tyrion and King's Landing. So that's a good little divergence between re first read and reread. We don't always get those. In regards to Varys' backstory, the magician and the, the voice calling out, all of that stuff, you know. If he had told us this back in Game of Thrones, perhaps we as readers would have been more sceptical. But after everything that's happened in this book, this book alone, we're now much more ready to jump on that metaphysical train. We've just seen elements such as this are not restricted to far off calf anymore. Or the priestesses of R'hllor, they can touch anybody now. That's what Varys is signalling, that anyone, even in the political arena of King's Landing, where there isn't any magic really, people can be, still be affected by it. They can still have it in their mind. So it's just George spreading his fingers out a bit there. Got another quote here. 
he lit a candle to the stranger for himself. Now, that goes a long way to showing Tyrion's self-image at the moment, doesn't it? Because, don't forget, a couple of Catelyn chapters ago, don't know if it was her last one or the one before that, we had her pointing out that no one prays to the stranger because it's kind of uncomfortable, it's kind of taboo. You're supposed to pray to the father, the warrior, you know, the others, you know the drill. Tyrion's lighting candles with a stranger because he sees himself as the outlier. He sees himself as the not good one. People don't like the stranger. The stranger means death, and Tyrion's connected to him more than the more traditional versions. So, hmm. Lastly, for this chapter, Tyrion's thoughts on Bronn and Shay, they're kind of symmetrical, but he's only aware of the Bronn-focused ones. And I don't think I'd picked up on my on Bronn mirroring Shay so much in my earlier reads, in that Bronn is performing a service for Tyrion. He is getting paid, he is doing the service, he goes home at the end of the day. And Shay is actually the same. But Tyrion can realise about Bronn, he can know, don't get too close to Bronn, if the money dries up, Bronn might do this, if the city falls, Bronn might do this. But Shay is a lot more difficult for him because of that Taisha element, he just can't separate himself. Okie dokie, last chapter of the day. Thank the Lord, we've got another Catelyn chapter. Yeah. So, in this chapter, we've got River Run going to war again. Edmure defending the fords, and we actually get to see all that this time, which you know I enjoy. So, last week we spoke about Edmure. He needs to win, he needs one for his personality, for his ego. He kind of hammers that in in this chapter. That he hammers in the ego nail. That's, that's what he's out for here. And in, in this chapter, we get a lot of setup for Catelyn's next chapter and her big act of the book. I think you know what I mean. Because Tyrion's failed freeing can seem inconsequential at first, and by that I mean the um, you know the mummer and the locksmith and the thief and whatever else, those people he snuck in. That can seem inconsequential at first, but it's a symbol to Catelyn that he's not into fair trade and therefore can't entertain the idea he would uphold his end of the bargain for now. That's what she's thinking right now. And definitely she can't bring that idea out of Rob anymore, basically. Because what's Rob going to turn around and say? He's going to... Well, no, obviously we can't trade because this is, this is the kind of bad faith he's acting upon. So now Catelyn's going to have to think about outside the box. The way it's only half presented, the battle, and it's four girls, multiple fronts, combined with the intricate defences of the rivers that the Tully have perfected, to be honest, just makes it one of the best battle chapters in the series for me, personally. I love a river battle. I love river run. Uh, it's actually uh, easy to forget that we're present for two river battles in this book. If I said to you, hey, Clash of Kings... Remember that battle on the river? You say Blackwater. True, true, true. But we've also got these battles of the fords and uh, this really cool take on how Riverrun is defended. Even if we know uh, it actually all goes wrong and we're really seeing the beginning of the end kind of here. But we're not to know that now. That's just the benefit of rereading. Uh, that's why we enjoy rereading so much. And that is actually all I have for Catelyn 6. What? You're joking, aren't you? Catelyn chapter in a few notes. Don't look at me, look at Aziz. He's too busy, he's too good, he gets too many of my notes. But of course you're listening to Aziz and Ashea on the Sundays with the live streams and the main show anyway. So you got it all, don't worry. Everything I thought about, you've already it's already reached your ears. So thank you everybody. Like I said, that was a quick show today. I'm going to try and make it quicker and quicker while I'm finishing this Castles book. If you are interested in that, keep your eyes on my Twitter. Uh, that's at Sir Buckley, S-E-R Buckley because uh, announcements are coming, it's nearly done. Well, that's pretty a pretty big relief to me, <laughs> to me and my poor wife, I can tell you. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in, for listening. 
do get in touch. You know how to do so. Twitter, email, whatever you like. Carry a pigeon. I don't mind. I'd love to hear any feedback from you, any ideas, questions, whatever else. Just like to know you're out there because we do appreciate you tuning in each week. We'll be back with part nine. I think you know what's coming soon of Clash of Kings. I can't believe we haven't taken a break, have we? We've gone right through this book. It's gone quick. It's gone quick. So, again, thank you, everybody, and have a great day. We'll be back soon. <laughs>